0: Hello and welcome. This is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and founder of PCOS Diva. I hear from thousands of women with PCOS and I have to say the vast majority are frustrated with their experience at the doctor's office. They find many doctors who just don't really know much about PCOS and it takes many of us years to get a PCOS diagnosis and upwards of 70% of women are still undiagnosed. So it has been my goal over the last year to highlight the work of those doctors who are indeed on the front lines and truly fighting for us. These doctors are in the research trenches and are helping to develop the protocols to diagnose and treat women with PCOS. These are really the PCOS heroes, and we've heard from many of them over the last few months, from Dr. Richard Legro to Dr. Walter Futterwhite and Dr. Andrea Deneyf. And today, I am so thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Ricardo Aziz. So, Dr. Aziz is a physician, scientist, executive who serves as professor of obstetrics, gynecology, medicine, and medical humanities at the Georgia Regents University in Augusta, Georgia. It's the state of Georgia's only public academic health center and health sciences university. And there he currently serves as president and CEO of the Georgia Regents Health System. He is one of the preeminent PCS researchers in the world today. And a very warm welcome to Dr. Aziz.
1: Thank you, Amy. I appreciate being on the program.
0: We're just, I'm so happy to have you. And what I really wanted to do today was to give PCOS Divas the opportunity to ask you their burning questions. And over the last week, I had well over 100 question submissions. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't have time to ask um, for all of the questions, but I selected a handful, and I thought you could help um, answer them for us.
1: Be happy to. You know, it's a... It's very frustrating for many uh, uh, women with PCOS, as you said, because, you know, they have it, questions. Uh, sometimes uh, we just don't have the answers because science doesn't have it. But other times mm-hmm. it's because really not everybody is focused on polycystic ovary syndrome and androgen access in women. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll do what I can, and I'm happy to be here.
0: Great. Well, you know what, let's start on that subject. We actually got a question from Roxana, and this is what she asked. What is being done to continue um, to educate health practitioners from nurses to general med doctors about PCOS and early diagnosis and provide more options and treatments offered that are not approved in the U.S., um, like Diane 35? said that I almost lost my life to PCOS complications and continue to deal with issues. And she's appalled that after more than 10 years diagnosed, many health providers still don't know what this is or how to deal with it. And your insight from the field would be greatly appreciated to see how we can support some change.
1: That is a very good question. You know, I have the privilege, and it's really a privilege, to, to see primarily and right now exclusively women with polycystic ovary syndrome and excess Uh, Androgens, androgen excess uh, related type disorders. So I I just do this. And I will tell you that by the time patients come to see me, they've seen six or seven uh, different physicians or practitioners. uh, And so I understand their frustration. But before we understand what we need to do around how to educate uh, different healthcare practitioners, I think we need to understand what the barriers to education are.
0: Mm And one of the
1: biggest issues that we have with polycystic ovary syndrome uh, has been that we we have not had a consistent patient advocacy voice you know it's not we don't see the same force the same power behind for example the dialogue and stories behind breast cancer or behind other disorders that affect women and and so i think we have to say that as your group of course your efforts amy and and lots of others slowly we are building a constituency, we're building an advocacy group that allows us to, to to have our voices and the voices of the patients heard. But that's an issue. You know, we, we don't mm-hmm. press the priority. The second big issue that I think we have to understand is that because the drugs that currently are on the market, or even the drug cyproterone acetate, which uh, is contained in Diane. So acetate itself is off of off patent. So it's it's unlikely that a a pharmaceutical company will go through the FDA hoops that are necessary to bring it to this country, unfortunately. And because there has not been a unique product so far for polystigovers syndrome, you know, pharmaceutical companies have not uh, dwelled into 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 focusing on polystagovery syndrome, and so hence there's also not that economic drive either. So Between sort of a a lack of advocacy and and a a somewhat lack of uh, economic uh, interest by pharmaceuticals, we tend to find ourselves a little bit on the fringe side. But Mm -hmm. I will tell you that having worked on this for 30 years, you know, there's a lot uh, that has happened in the last 30 years. A lot more people understand what polystic syndrome is. A lot more patients know what it is as opposed to in the past. And a lot more practitioners at least have heard of the disorder, although they may not know very much about it at times. So one of the things that we do and one of the things that I, I recommend that patients consider is to, to, to ask their patients or ask the offices before they make an appointment to see a physician, if the physician has any kind of interest or the practitioner has any kind of interest in polystyrel syndrome, and what kind of things do they do to stay up uh, with the information. You know, if they go to different meetings and understand the latest uh, uh, information about polycystic syndrome, for example, at the Endocrine Society, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, or many other kind of uh, scientific forums, androgen excess and polycystic ovary syndrome societies. So the society particularly focused on polycystic syndrome research. These societies will provide some information for these uh, for these practitioners, but they have to want to go. And that's the key. If the practitioners themselves are not interested in the disorder because either the pharmaceutical reps are not coming by or because, you know, patients aren't demanding it or because they don't see it as a as a major problem, then I think we're always going to have the problem of undereducated practitioners. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and that's a really good point. You know, I, I tell women that they have to be a diva at the doctor. You know, you have to go in empowered and advocate for yourself. And I think that even starts before you even select your doctor um, and find the ones that really are, uh, you know, going to the meetings and really educating themselves to be on sort of the cutting edge. Uh, so great advice Absolutely. there. So, I'm going to go to Kristen's question. She wants to know, what is the best way to naturally or medically lower testosterone levels? And she said, in the context of an otherwise clean endocrine panel. I'll you know, that right is a,
1: you. that is a, I'm sorry, go ahead, sorry.
0: Oh, yeah, go ahead, please. Uh,
1: so, so, that is a good question. You know, it's a, so the first question we have to ask ourselves is is why do we want to lower our androgen panel or testosterone and so on and so forth. Okay? And uh, and so in some cases, of course, uh patients are suffering from the external effects of of, of uh male hormones, right? The excess uh, hair growth, hirsutism that we call it, uh, uh those kind of things. But 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 we have to I think first always understand that High levels of male hormones in women are not necessarily bad. Let me try to explain that in the sense that Mm -hmm. the male hormones themselves tend to, you know, be the kind of hormone that gives people energy and muscle mass and so on and so forth. It's it's when they get much over normal that then they become an issue. But But before one treats randomly women with male hormone levels that may be on the higher range of normal and say, okay, we want to suppress them, the question is, what are we trying to do? Because there's lots of other ways to treat patients without having to, to, to suppress male hormones a lot, because then patients sometimes feel not as well. So I think it's important. But let's assume that, that we want to suppress male hormones. You know, there are pharmacologic methods, right, that with medications that, the, the, you know, if we assume that most of the male hormones of ovary syndrome are coming from the ovaries, although we've done a lot of work on the adrenal, and we know the adrenal contributes to that. Mm-hmm. the majority of the strong uh uh androgens come from the ovary, then things like you know birth control pills of course work uh, sort of a continued supplementation of estrogen progesterone, not really in a control pill, but randomly uh and not random but but separately can can do that uh, you know th- there are different hormonal ways to suppress the production of male hormones from the ovary, if that's what we're looking at there are obviously pharmaceutical ways of suppressing. Hormones from the adrenal with corticosteroids, you know prednisone, cortisol, cortisone, dexamethasone these kind of things, but those are you know have a lot of other side effects, so I think we need to use them with a lot of caution mm-hmm. now the natural ways to suppress male hormones are a little bit trickier because really there is nothing to inhibit male hormones per se right uh, and so you know if you take uh, higher doses of, of estrogen if you would from Natural sources that may be sufficient to sort of bring down the stimulation from the brain to the ovary, but you know you would have to take pretty powerful amounts of uh, of natural hormones, and of course they'd have other effects, right? I mean, taking natural estrogens would have other effects, uh, uh, both on your uterus, uh, even in potentially increase certain risks for cancer and so on. So, so from where I stand, there's not a lot of good um, uh, ways of naturally reducing male hormones, with the exception of weight loss, uh, in the event that you actually have overweightness that is helping drive the excess male hormones.
0: Mm -hmm. What about um, d-chiroinositol? It seems like there's some research coming out that that's showing that it's lowering um, androgen levels.
1: And Absolutely, we we were part of a, a study many years ago with dicarinothitol. In itself, the study, you know, really had the D.Cyroinositol had relatively modest effects, uh, positive effects on on women with polycystic ovary syndrome. Uh, but now uh, the combination of dicaro and myo uh, inositol uh, is appearing to be of some value uh, in patients, and so that may be may turn out to be. Uh, a good uh, pharmacological or pharma, or, or or just a a good therapy for uh treating patients with uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, at least mm-hmm. in a modest level. If the androgen suppression is relatively modest, okay. uh, but again, you know, the question is, um, who is available? Who has that available? Uh, you know, not all pharmacists uh, know how to prepare it, uh, and uh, you know, what's quality control? Those kind of things. But I certainly think that that has promise as we mm-hmm. move forward.
0: This is kind of a burning question for me as um, I'm going to be 43 this year and I'm kind of heading slowly into perimenopause. Um, But there's a lot of questions on, you know, what is going to happen at menopause? Will it be different for those of us with PCOS? I know I've seen studies that show um, women with PCOS could possibly remain fertile longer. Um, But what, what are your thoughts on menopause and PCOS?
1: Well, first, I'd like to say that forty-three is pretty darn young. <laughs> so, <Obviously. laughs> uh, you know, I, I know you may not feel it, but it is. But uh, nevertheless, you know, obviously, you uh, know, we're all going to age. You know, there is not a lot of good studies around menopause in women uh, with polycystic ovary syndrome. It's an interesting. It's an interesting fact. Uh, the literature is limited, but what we know is the following: as women uh, become uh, older with polycystic ovary syndrome. They tend to produce less male hormones. I mean, in general, humans tend to produce less androgens, less steroids, if you would, as they age. That applies to men, it applies to women, and of course applies to women with polycystic ovary syndrome. So, if you look at adrenal male hormones, which we've studied, they drop uh, as you get older. Uh, ovarian androgens also drop as you get older. So, in fact, patients start to observe as they get closer to to menopause in the late to, to mid, mid to late forties. That uh, you know the hair growth may improve if they have excess hair growth. That the acne may improve. That their uh, uh, their ovulation may become better, uh, and so on and so forth. So so that's the first thing that I think we observe in in many women with polycystic ovary syndrome. The other one, of course, has to do with the fact that while steroids androgens may be improving somewhat, and their side effects may be improving. You know the risk of, uh, of, uh, of uh, glucose intolerance, risk of diabetes and prediabetes, heart disease, and so on does increase, right? So, mm-hmm. so that part needs to be monitored. We need to be watching uh, patients as they uh, age uh, very carefully for signs of diabetes or heart disease. Uh, and, and and there is these suggestions that perhaps uh, women with polycystic ovary syndrome uh, tend to because they ovulate less. Uh, may have uh, somewhat later menopause, but I will tell you that I am, having reviewed much of that literature, I am very skeptical about that. Uh, you know, uh, I think listeners need to remember that there's two mechanisms for ovulation or for actually maturing an egg in one's ovary. Uh, one happens without the need for any hormones from the brain and is called pre-follicular uh, uh, growth and that happens starting in utero, starting when you're a baby in your mother's uh, womb and so you lose eggs, they sort of grow and they stop and they lose and so on and so forth. And that happens regardless of whether you have ovulation or not. And then you have a second wave of some of these eggs, of course, reach ovulation, but that's the minority. So the, the chances of really uh, having eggs preserved well into, you know, older age for patients with positive ovary syndrome is is less likely. I mean, I'm only... Uh, to, to hear to tell you that's certainly not, not something I would bank on a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously I wouldn't tell patients, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Just, you know, go ahead and try to get pregnant at 50 because you'll be fine. That's just not not the right thing to do. But we'll see. We'll see what better data comes out with in the future.
0: So you know, I, I find that a lot of women, and they come to me to make um, lifestyle change, you know, through diet and stress reduction and exercise, and um, a big motivator for a lot of these women is to increase their fertility because they want they want to get pregnant. Um, but what I'm hearing you say that, and you know, I, I I feel this about this strongly myself, is that PCOS it's just not a fertility issue; it's a lifelong health issue, and as we enter into those, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, we, we have to be as vigilant as we were in our 20s and 30s when we were trying to get pregnant with our, our lifestyle so that we don't get um, diabetes and heart disease um, because we're at higher risk.
1: You know, many women with polycystic ovary Syndrome uh, tend to view uh, um their problem as uh, a cosmetic issue. And then as they get older, they say, well, it's getting better, my cycles are getting better. And so they sort of really are unaware, for starters, and two, really uh, don't follow up on the rest of the disorders, as we talked about, the diabetes and the heart disease, and sometimes even increased risk of stroke, and so on and so forth. So uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, polystic ovary syndrome, for some patients, may really be a major issue around fertility at that moment. But when that is resolved one way or the other, you know, it's a whole lifestyle issue. It's a whole issue around their uh, how they appear, how they feel, and uh, uh, what their uh, other disorders are. So, I, I I think that patients themselves, as you said earlier in the program, have to really know a lot about the disorder themselves, and so they can help educate the practitioners that they themselves see.
0: Yeah, this is this is my question. Um, I. I'm wondering if there could be an autoimmune component to PCOS. I've sort of seen it suggested. Um, I know that in my work I see a lot of women with PCOS that also have other autoimmune disorders. And I know once you have an autoimmune disorder, you're like three to four times more likely to have another one. So things like Hashimoto's and psoriasis and um, celiacs. And I know that I've been seeing lately that endometriosis has also been suggested that it's an autoimmune disorder. And I've seen you know many women with PCOS with endometriosis. So what's your thought about PCOS? PCOS um, having like an autoimmune component to
1: it. So, yeah, this has been suggested, a number of scientists have suggested that perhaps uh, women with PCOS have a higher risk of lupus or uh, thyroid disorders, which are often uh, autoimmune. Uh, and I will tell you that the data is unclear, but probably pointing to the negative, in other words, pointing to that. Hmm. Let me share with i why I'm, I'm thinking that, okay? You know, we've obviously done our own studies in our own population. We have well over a couple thousand patients that we have followed carefully for that. In in that population, uh, which we reported a number of years ago, uh, really the incidence of, say, thyroid disorders was no greater than it would be in a general population. It was about 2 to 3%, okay? And so that just thyroid disorders as a marker, if you would, for autoimmune disorders, right? Um, and then if you look at other studies where, you know, we've done large populational studies of PCOS looking for various things, and you look at the data
0: excluding
1: subjects, right, who have, say, thyroid or other uh, medical problems, there are actually relatively few, Okay. So, so one of the problems that we suffer with polycystic ovary syndrome, uh, and many other disorders, but polycystic ovary syndrome in particular, is that we have referral bias, in other words, you know, the patients who come to see you or the patients who complain and want to be seen and the patients who have issues are the patients who have issues, right? They're the ones who, who are most affected. Uh, we recently published a study comparing women who were coming in to see a physician versus women uh, with father's tickle syndrome that we were able to diagnose in a screening study of the population. What we found is that the women who were identified in a screening study of the population, in other words, they were found in a systematic way, not because they said, I need to go see a doctor, were about the same size uh, in degree of obesity as the general population, did not have really a, uh, had much less hair growth than, than the women who came to see your the patients, uh, they came to see the physician in the clinic and so on. So so part of what happens with all disorders, but particularly with palmystic ovary syndrome, is that certainly the women who are having multiple issues, the women who are having, say, um, you know, issues around autoimmune disorder, et cetera, are going to want to see a physician much more frequently than a woman who has sort of garden variety for a syndrome or may have a milder mm-hmm. form of it. Mm-hmm. So so all I can say to you is that the data we have isn't very clear. There have been suggestions. You're absolutely right in the scientific literature. Uh, I am yet to be convinced because my own clinical experience, and I've seen, as I said, thousands of patients, really doesn't tell me that. hmm
0: Great. So another um, kind of secondary issue of PCOS, and this is something that I learned about when I listened to the 2012 PCOS NIH workshop, which was great. And um, you know, you can actually still go on their site on the National Institutes of Health and see, the um, you know, video cast for the workshop if anyone's interested. But there was a real suggestion about PCOS and, and the connection to fatty liver. And so I wanted to ask Kristen's question. So she says, in relation to metabolic syndrome, how frequently does PCOS or insulin resistance lead to fatty liver, and what can we do early to prevent it? So, yeah, certainly,
1: um, being insulin resistant, uh, and more importantly, being overweight, uh, both contribute to fatty liver. And I think that it's a, it's a good question. Uh, I would say that certainly anywhere between 40 and 60 percent of, of PCOS women with significant uh, uh, overweightness or obesity will have uh, some degree of fatty liver. Uh, now, again, many individuals who are overweight will have fatty liver, and that may or may not disrupt the liver functions, you know. Uh, and we tend to get worried when fatty liver, in other words, infiltration of fat into the liver, right, just fat starts growing into the liver, begins to sort of disrupt the liver's function, okay. Uh, and so so I would think that it is, uh, in my experience, and we've done some preliminary studies, it is very common, all right, uh, in, in, in women with Paldestegovia syndrome, but much more common in patients with uh, who are overweight and have Paldestegovia syndrome. It's much less common to find in women who have Paldestegovia syndrome and are of normal weight, even if they were to be insulin resistant.
0: Okay. So what can um, we do to prevent it? I mean, if somebody is overweight, um, is there anything to kind of reduce the effects or lessen the degree?
1: Well, you know, I, I don't want to sound simplistic, but but, but because the data for patient with post syndrome, and certainly other patients, the, the data suggests that the primary driver for fatty liver is being overweight or obese, then working significantly on the patient's weight, uh, either through lifestyle modification, right, or if uh, that doesn't work or the patient's really uh, overweight uh, through... Uh, uh, um, uh, surgical means of, of weight reduction. But but if we can have that patient or help that patient reduce uh, weight significantly, that will significantly improve the fatigue.
0: Okay. So I also wanted to ask you a question. I know we, we talked a little bit about this with Dr. Andrea Deney. She's done a lot of work. With genetics and, and PCOS but Renee right. is wondering what is the genetic risk for our daughters and um, I know I have a five-year-old little girl myself so this is um, definitely on the, the top of my question list
1: so you know we we and others Andrea our group etc have done a number of genetic studies in families uh, if you if you look at sisters for example the risk of uh, a sister being affected is somewhere between 50 and 60 percent. okay? Uh, mothers are actually a little bit higher than that, so it's a it's it's a pretty you know it does run in, in families and it's pretty strong as as a as a as, a, as a, an inherited factor. Uh, when we're talking about daughters, uh, we run and observe about the same thing about a 50 percent risk that the daughters of mothers with DCIS are going to be also affected with postmenopausal so what to do about that, rest? Well, certainly yeah. the first thing I tell uh, mothers is do not get paranoid. Do not, you know, begin to examine this poor child's uh, every hair comes out. to make them feel self-conscious. <laughs> they can feel different. That's just bad, okay? okay. There's nothing that, I mean, I mean, you know, they can go through adolescence. They generally, unless they begin to be quite severe. And I think it's okay to discreetly examine their hair growth pattern you know uh, when they're sort of coming into adolescence, and certainly afterwards, as much as you can, of course, the adolescent by nature wants to hide her body but 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 the issue is I would not overreact huh for uh, to uh, to 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 any you know sort of mild a little bit of hair and so on and so forth in the sense of of mild, but if it becomes an issue uh, and it becomes a question as to whether. Uh, the daughter is developing, say excess hair growth or has persistent acne due to male hormones or her cycles after a couple of years of of having started her menses do not become regular. She does need to see somebody uh, and again, like you said earlier in the program she 'll have to see somebody who does understand ovary syndrome and does understand ovary syndrome in younger individuals. Uh, there are some pediatric endocrinologists in the country there are some of us who do. A lot of research and see patients with this, but unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I can only tell you that probably the number of individuals that are well trained across the country to to to, to examine and give us sort of a you know a, a, a knowledgeable opinion is going to be few, and, mm-hmm. and 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 we are still struggling with that. We're working with that, uh, but but again, uh, it's something to be important, but something to, for mothers to know because again, the diagnosis in children is much harder to make. Yeah. Uh, than it is in adults.
0: So I'm hearing from a lot of moms whose daughters are 11, 12, 13, that have already been given a PCOS diagnosis. Um, is that is that an accurate diagnosis, you think, at that age?
1: Well, it could be. I mean, I've seen patients who by the age of 11 and 12 were completely, you know, affected and were a classic case of published syndrome. So it could mm-hmm. be the case, but I also think that that we're tending to find an overdiagnosis of polycystic ovary syndrome among adolescents. You have to remember that adolescents, by nature, will have polycystic-looking ovaries, right?
0: Yeah. What we call
1: multi-cystic ovaries. And so you have to be a little bit careful that you are not just going by the ovarian appearance because that's going to be common. And likewise, uh, you know, DHEAS, it's an adrenal uh, metabolite, adrenal mental hormone metabolite, tend to be quite high in adolescents, and, and so you can't just go by that measurement alone because uh, you're going to have to reduce uh, or, or just relate it to their age. So I do think that it's harder to make the diagnosis of pomp Syndrome in young women. Uh, I think it's important to sort of wait and see how they develop. Uh, but again, there are some children, some adolescents who have really significant, uh, um, you know, significant uh, um, features of uh skeling Syndrome already at an early age.
0: Okay, well, we have time for, I think, one more question, and I wanted to go with Kim's question. Uh, she wants to know what the long-term effects of metformin use are. Should you know there's so many of us who, uh, women with PCOS, are taking metformin um, as a therapy for PCOS over the long term. Is there anything we should be concerned about?
1: So, metformin is a is a drug that's been around for a long time, and thankfully, we know a lot about it, of course, in the more in the field of diabetes. Uh, and it is also it's important for the listeners to understand that metformin is a relatively modest agent. It's not a really powerful agent for improving insulin resistance uh, or decreasing androgens and those kind of things. And I generally discourage women, unless they have a fairly mild case and it works for them, uh, from using metformin as a single agent for the treatment of polycystic ovary syndrome, and I think it's just important to note that it's a med- to be modestly acting. Nevertheless, it's helpful in patients who have certainly signs of insulin resistance, uh, and, uh, and 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 would appreciate having the additional treatment. If you would, uh, we don't know of any long-term uh, side effects or risks of metformin in healthy individuals. Right? I mean, there are obviously cases of uh, lactic acidosis and so on and so forth, and women who may have diabetes or some kidney disorder and so on. But this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about healthy women who, other, other than having polycystic ovary syndrome, are, are, are uh, physically well. And so metformin in those women at least does not have significant side effects, other than obviously the the side effects that we tend to experience normally, the, the bowel uh, upset, uh, if you would, and, and uh, Sometimes a little bit of low sugar.
0: Okay, great. Well, I uh, like to close uh, these conversations uh, with sort of a message of hope. I know that so many women with PCOS feel pessimistic, confused, kind of out of control, and helpless. But I think that there is a lot of hope, and I, I'd love to hear um, you know your insights, Dr. Aziz. You know,
1: I, I, I and I share with you and I share with the patients and the listeners their level of frustration because sometimes it is frustrating, and many of them that will come to our our offices uh, obviously uh, are frustrated. But I will tell you that the number of individuals, practitioners, physicians, and nurses, who are learning about polystic syndrome is increasing every day. I see that compared to what it was 30 years ago. It's increasing. People understand it, and, you know, they also understand that if it's beyond their their uh, abilities, and they will refer. There's hope out there because there are a lot of individuals like myself and my colleagues and others who are really focused on trying to understand ovary syndrome, trying to understand excess androgens in, in women and, and understand how do we help them and what novel uh, therapies can we come up with. And I'm very hopeful that we're going to find something relatively new in the next uh, five to six years, maybe sooner. And I'm also, I think, that, the, that we all have to be hopeful because at the end of the day, patients themselves are empowered with their knowledge, and that's a really powerful tool. I think that the most dangerous thing is when a patient doesn't know uh, that she has a disorder and doesn't know how to deal with it. Uh, but I do think that with the advent of the Internet, while there's certainly a lot of misinformation out there, there's also a lot of good information that's allowed patients to take better control over the disorder. So I, I am very optimistic, and, and I think patients should be as well.
0: Well, that, that's wonderful, and, and I just want to thank you so much for the work that you do on behalf of um, those of us with PCOS, and, and so much for your taking your time today to, um, to speak to me. And, and thank you to everyone that listened, and I look forward to being with you all next time. Thank you.